0: Good morning, and thank you for joining us online this morning. For those of you who may not have met me yet, I am your executive pastor, Russell Wilson. And for those who love football, not that Russell Wilson. Executives these days have not necessarily had an easy time, or maybe they could be riding high depending on their particular job market my research tells me that in the business world some execs have lost their job or have been asked to take early retirement or have taken buyout packages because the market just has not been kind to them others however have soared because their industry has just taken off because of COVID, so they're sitting pretty as we come to the fall of 2020 Everyone, of course, is looking at budgeting for 2021. And so what is the plan? Well, in my world, some churches have had to lay off staff because giving has gone way down. Attendance has plummeted online, and giving has done the same thing. So those of us who are executive pastors, well, we're cutting costs and trimming staff. However, other churches, it's another story that's emerging. Creativity has come alive. New ministries are emerging as people are coming through the doors or online. Money is coming in. Churches are strong and healthy. So what if I said to you, hmm, I've done some executive research, and in light of that research, I've put together a proposal for our board. Lots of execs in business, and the successful part of the industry are getting rather significant bonuses as part of their year-end strategy. Well, and then there are the 2021 salary increases of 15 to 20%, which is, well, with the stress of COVID, that's only fitting when you think and understand, well, the stress that an executive has performed under in light of this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic that we're under. Well, then there's the other little things that are incentives that you want to offer to executives to keep them around. Things like annual cruises for him and his wife or local golf memberships. They're the things that make an executive think twice before they start looking at other possible opportunities. These are just smart business decisions. Or another one that I saw was specialized parking spot for the executive pastor you know on our parking lot it's a long walk to come here if you don't get the right parking spot and it doesn't cost very much it just lets him know how much he's appreciated now the only problem with all of this of course is that it actually flies in the face of a certain word that's used a lot in the bible and the word that i'm referring to is the word servant it's used in both the Old and New Testament. The words servant, service, and serve actually occur over 1,100 times. And Jesus describes himself as a servant and says that he came to serve, not to be served, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Of course, the example and pattern of the world is not how we are to function at all. And the idea of asking our board to give business style incentives to senior leaders would be completely contrary to what we see here in Scripture, wouldn't it? Speaking of your Bibles, I want to ask you to join with me in turning to your Bibles in Acts chapter 6 or in your devices as we continue in our series. And we find this character named Stephen in Acts chapter 6. In the church that at this point in time is facing some challenges and And we're going to find out that that's not all that unusual, but we're going to find an interesting challenge that they faced in in chapter six. And I want to read verses one through to seven for us today as we take off and look at this particular portion. And, And we're going to jump and read a little bit more in Acts chapter six as well. But I just want to read those first seven verses as we start off this morning. It says, in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the... Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Well, this proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Wow. Now, that's pretty interesting. So we got this decision happening that um, a problem had arisen, and we want to just examine what took place here and how they dealt with it. So first of all, what we want to understand is during times of growth, we can expect problems. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that. But we want to take note of how they actually dealt with the problem. And so let's back up to verses 1 and 2 again. It says, in these days, when the number of disciples was increasing, The Hellenistic Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So there it is. We have great news. The number of disciples was increasing. And take note of that wording. It does not say the number of attendees or the number of converts. It clearly says the number of disciples. And that's important. Why? because it's a biblical word. It says the number of disciples, they're increasing. So they face the problem. And that's not unusual all throughout church history. When you have growth, you're going to have problems. It's a spiritual battle that we're in. It's just a reality that we face as church leadership. John Piper, pastor, in the message that he shared in this passage, points out that, Luke very clearly shares at different points throughout his book of Acts the truth about church growth and what happens. And so he says, in, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, 2, verse 47, 4, verse 4, 5, verse 14, 9, verse 31, 13, verse 49, and 16, verse 5, we have the historian Luke telling us about the growth of the early church. Those are all passages where Luke clearly tells us the church was growing. However, listen to this. In Acts 5, verses 1 to 11, 8, 13 to 24, 18, 24 to 28, in Acts 19, verse 18, and also our current story here in Acts 6, we read of various problems that the early church faced. So clearly, Acts tells us the story of growth, but Acts also says there's problems. Piper simply points out there was growth and there was problems. One doesn't happen without the other following quickly behind. Why? Because we're in a spiritual battle. I had the privilege of planting a church in Canmore, Alberta. We had assistance from our denomination where they said, for three years, what we're going to do is we're going to give you financial help To get your church started but after each year we're going to deduct our assistance by a third so i was highly motivated to see the church grow knowing that our financial assistance was going to be cut back by a third each year we had people though who were quite connect or quite um comfortable with the church staying small because they kind of knew each other and as the church began to grow we began to face problems i remember speaking with one lady who shared with me how she didn't know the names of many of the newcomers. And she told me quite clearly and quite plainly that she was not happy with the growth of the church. She preferred it when she knew everybody's name, everybody's birthday, and even everybody's anniversary. Well, we talked about what the Bible says that the church is supposed to be about. And I trained and I discipled my young leaders to listen to the concerns of people, but always to point them back to this book listen to the people yes but at the end of the conversation we come back to this book why because it's our guide and it's our foundation and in this book faithfulness to god means faithfulness to seeing the good news spread just as it did in the book of acts over and over again adding to our numbers which is great news and also it means learning new names that's part of life it's a joy if we take it the right way and understand it. There were two groups at odds in this situation in Acts chapter 6. The problem was there were some poor widows who were not getting the food that they needed. And that actually, if you go back to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, it was a part of the story of the early church. They shared everything in common, and someone, when someone was in need, that way they could share it with those who were in need, those who had shared with those who are in need. The story unfolds for us in Acts 4. Well, we only have to move along a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 6, and we see there's some logistical issues of this problem not clearly working out the way they would like. It tells us that the Hellenistic Jews are complaining against the Hebraic Jews. Well, there really shouldn't be any difference, right? Because they're all one in Christ, right? Well, That does make sense, but we have some problems. So quickly, let's get some history. The Hellenistic Jews spoke mainly Greek and came from around the Mediterranean, while the Hebraic Jews spoke Aramaic and they came from Palestine. And so there was probably a long-standing rivalry between these two groups, even though they were both Jewish and even though they both have found salvation in Christ. William Larkin, in his commentary, says this, And I quote, Exasperated by language barriers, such concerns could, and in the Jerusalem church did, foster suspicion, distrust, prejudice, discrimination, and discord. So the disciples, they discern there is a cultural, social, and logistical issue here. So what did they do? Well, let's see what they didn't do. What they didn't do was impose a solution without the help of the body. How do we know that? Well, let's look again at the passage. In verse 2, it says So the twelve gathered all the disciples together, and they said, It wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So, verse 3, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. So they listened. And they acknowledged that there was a problem. They didn't deny it. They didn't say, well, I think all is well. And they didn't ignore it because they knew that there was a problem. So they gathered the church all together. I like what John Stott says in his commentary about verse 2. He said, there's no hint whatever that the apostles regarded social work as inferior to pastoral work. They got them all together, and they said that it wasn't beneath their dignity at all, Stott says, it was entirely a question of calling. They had no liberty to be distracted from their own priority task, so they made a proposal to the church, and that proposal was, verse 3, hey, you guys, gather everybody together. It says in verse 3, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. That's what is instructed in verse 3. So it's also important to take notice of this, the 12 are not going to try and be all things to all people, either themselves. They knew that the issue at hand was important, clearly important, and it needed to be handled, just not by them. And I think this is often where pastors and church leaders can get bogged down. They get into a mindset where because they think because they are the pastor or they are the church leaders, they need to address and solve every problem. It's just not true or even good leadership. There's this great story in the book of Exodus where this fellow Moses is leading the people of Israel and his father-in-law comes along, Jethro, and he can't believe what he's seeing. And so if you've got your Bibles and want to turn to that, is the story you've seen in Exodus chapter 18 and uh, Jethro comes along and he sees what his son-in-law is doing. It says in verse 17... Moses' father in law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you, and you cannot handle it alone. Now, all the people were coming to Moses for advice. He says, Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice. May God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But, now listen to this part, select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials, now listen, over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring the difficult cases to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand this strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. So Jethro gives some advice to his son-in-law and says, this would be good for you, and you will do well. When he looks at the situation, he says, this isn't good, son, you need help. A few other observations in Acts 6 about the leadership of the twelve. They listen, they engage. They also get people involved in the solution. Stott goes on in his commentary to say this, and I quote, this delegation of social welfare to the seven is commonly thought to have been the origin of the diaconate. Now listen, nevertheless, the seven are not actually called diaconoi. And so what's that about? Well, you may or may not be aware that many churches have their leadership divided up into two sections, elders and deacons. Elders, which pastors are in the historical Baptist understanding, would be responsible for more of what we think of as the spiritual aspect of church leadership, and deacons would take care of what we would think of as the practical aspects of the church. Also, what they don't do is they don't ask for volunteers in Acts chapter 6. We do a lot of that in church nowadays. I toured churches for a number of years, six years in total. And as I crossed throughout Western Canada, I'd often hear a call for volunteers and church announcements or church bulletins. I asked for volunteers in every possible department you could think of, from uh, the leadership level down to the everyday ordinary thing of shoveling snow and stacking chairs. We asked for volunteers in every possible way. But you know what? Of all the hundreds of things that we ask for, I've rarely ever heard a church leader stand up and say, I'm looking for seven servants to serve this weekend as we go and do whatever that task may be. It was when I was church planting in Canmore that the light came on for me. And I told my staff and my church leaders, listen, we are not going to ask for volunteers anymore. What we're going to do is we're going to ask for disciples or servants; those are biblical words, and so we stopped asking for volunteers, and we started asking people to serve as uh, servants in whatever capacity, or disciples in whatever capacity that we were looking for. You want to know more about that? Well, then turn with me to the book of Philippians, because there, this very famous guy that we know from Scripture, Paul, he refers to himself in those, posi- those in that in those words. He writes this book, Philippians, and says to the church there in chapter 1, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That's how Paul saw himself. I, Paul, am writing to you with my friend Timothy, and I'm writing to you as a servant of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. You flip over to chapter 2, and he calls them, to this. In chapter 2, he says this, verse 3. Do nothing out of se- out of a selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now listen to this, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Of a servant. Paul referring to Jesus, calling the church at Philippi to take the same attitude as Jesus took. Wow. We're supposed to have that same attitude ourselves. The attitude of a servant. Now, perhaps we need to rethink and relook at that mindset. The difference being between a volunteer and the way in which it's framed in our world and in the scriptures, the idea of a servant. One has a sense of, well, I'm not being paid, so you ought to be grateful that I'm giving you this time, God. And the other is, Lord, I'm so thankful for your love that it's my joy actually to serve you and others. Well, again, getting back to Acts chapter 6, look at the qualities that they asked the church to look for in the men that they would choose. You would think, well, all we really need are a few guys to get some donkeys together and the food to get over to the widow's houses. Again, let's be clear. This wasn't about just choosing someone who was available, but rather it was about choosing some people who were wise and full of the Spirit. I know that we have a number of vacancies that are open here in our own church, from board positions all throughout to youth and children's ministry and, and, and all, a number of them. Let's just look at each other in our body pray through the individuals that we know and how can we encourage each other? How fitting it would be if we prayed for one another and that we would be able to put our hand upon a a sister or a brother's shoulder and say, you know what, I've prayed about it and I believe you would be a fitting person to fit this particular position that is available and is open because I just think you have the gifts, talents, and abilities for that particular position. Who can you encourage this week to serve? What a great way that we could be a blessing to each other. Secondly, during times of growth, there are going to be problems, as we said first, but secondly, during times of growth, we need to stay balanced as well. We need to stay balanced. That's in verses 3 through to 7. The early church did this so well. Verses 3 through to 7 tell us that um, this proposal pleased the whole group, verse 5 the whole group, and they chose Stephen, and it goes on to name them all, and they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. And so the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And then it says in verse 8, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people, but opposition arose. And it goes on to tell us how the Sanhedrin and others weren't pleased with these men. The widows were being fed and the gospel spread, and this is a two-pronged approach that we should take note of. The widows were being fed and the gospel spread. We don't lean too far one way or the other. We are to be a gospel-centered church. This book and the proclamation of it week by week and day by day is something that we as a church leadership take very seriously. We want to be in the business of making sure that we are making disciples. And as we read through verses 8 to 10, we understand that there's opposition that happened and people got... Unhappy. Equally significant is our concern for the poor. I like what Lloyd Ogilvie said in his commentary about Stephen. He said, a person like Stephen, crowned with faith, grace, and power, becomes a magnet to people in need. He also becomes a moving target of opposition. Stephen was chosen by this church to serve widows. They were people in need. And Luke says that Stephen was full of God's grace and power. Campbell Morgan, another commentator, played it this way. His sweetness and strength merged in one personality. Sweetness and strength. Whatever it was, it generated opposition, as we see in verse 11 and to the end of the chapter. There's something so attractive about a person or a church that serves others, isn't there? Remember Jesus speaking to the disciples in Mark 10? He said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather to serve What happens when you read through the Gospels? Well, you find that people were attracted to Jesus. We want to be that kind of a church that's so well-balanced. We want to be that kind of a place where people are attracted to us. We clearly want to proclaim the Word of God, but we also want to reach out with the Gospel and have needs of people being met by the generosity of this church. We never know who's going to be impacted. As Stephen was being a servant, He got himself into a debate in 6, chapter 10, it tells us. And we realize it's because of that balance of wisdom that he had that they couldn't debate him and win. And Stephen's message in Acts, chapter 7, is fascinating. You read through that whole message, you realize it's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. Fascinating that this guy who was chosen to serve widows ends up preaching the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It breaks down into three different sections, actually. The first section is the patriarchal period in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through to 16. And then there's a section of Moses and the law, in verses, 7, uh, uh, chap- verses 7 through to 43, 17 through to 43. And then he talks about the tabernacle and the temple, verses 44 to 50. But I want us to focus on the very end of the chapter 7. It starts at verse 51, where he gets very personal with his listeners. He says, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. I can't imagine how they must have heard that And listened, and, and well, it tells us in verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, that's consistent all throughout chapter 6 and 7, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet. Now here's a key part because this begins to transition the book of Acts at the young man named Saul. And a transition begins to take place in the history of the book of Acts. Here we encounter a man who will change much of the early church. The death of Stephen. We don't know how much of an impact it had upon this young man named Saul who's going to have his name changed to Paul, of course. But we know at this point in time, his, simply his heart is hard and he despises this new sect of believers that he believes are all wrong. But we see this coming, this beginning to be the, the transition of Paul, of Saul's life that is going to happen. But right now, he's just watching and in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. We read, it says, and Saul approved of the killing of Stephen. Wow. I have a friend named Rick who taught me once much about this idea of, being, of staying balanced. Rick's life was, uh, is quite a story. When he was growing up, he butted both a mom and a dad, and his brothers and sisters but he was so despised by his mom that um, she wouldn't let him sit at the supper table. And and so she would make him sit off to the side and and when they finished their supper, she would scrape whatever was left over of their plates and she would put it into a dog dish. And uh, she'd put it on the floor with the dog and and Rick had to fight with the dog in order to um, eat whatever was left from the dinner table. That was his experience growing up. And... As soon as he was able, when he was old enough, he obviously left home at a, at a young age and um, lived on the streets um, and, and uh, eventually got trained in the gift of the ability of martial arts and um, moved off to from Saskatchewan into uh, Vancouver and uh, made a living uh, as an enforcer for gangs, collecting overdue payments for them. He was a collection agent, lived in the Molar mainland and lived his life for a while there and, and finally got to a point where, where life didn't mean much for him at all. And so he moved back to Saskatoon and spent a, a weekend in Saskatoon and, and thought that uh, this is it, I'm done. I, I I have got nothing to live for. And so he was on a second floor apartment building and um, thought I'm just going to do drugs for the weekend and then on Monday I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my life. And so that was his plan. And, and I got to know Rick as I lived in Saskatoon and um, he, he, he told me his story and it was just a, a, an amazing story and and so uh did drugs all weekend and on monday morning he was uh there he is the balcony apartment that he was in backed onto a church parking lot actually and and so monday morning this car pulled into the parking lot and and he thought it was the janitor actually and and so he was leaning out over the balcony it was summertime and and he saw this guy get out and he thought it was the janitor he yelled at him he said boy buddy i sure feel sorry for you and he didn't realize it was actually the pastor and and so the guy looked at him and said why do you feel sorry for me and he said because that place is going to be trashed there's been people there all weekend because there had been youth meetings on friday night there'd been a wedding on saturday there were services all day sunday and so he said, you've you got a mess to clean up in there. And so the guy came over and he said, why do, you, why do you think that? And so Rick explained to him. And so then the pastor just talked to him for a while and then said, um, so what's your story? And so Rick said, well, he says this is actually my last day on earth. And uh, the pastor said, well, how come? And so Rick just said, well, he says, because I'm going to finish off this last bit of drugs that I got. And then he says that I'm going to take my life. And the pastor said, well, can I come up and talk to you? And so Rick said, well, sure, why not? So he came up and... Uh, Long story short, the pastor ended up leading him to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that day and Rick told him his story and and the pastor said, well, you know, you actually got to confess your sin and and you got to pay for your crimes that you've committed and and Rick was all willing to do that and fortunately for him, the crimes that he had sort of done, uh, nobody really much reported those kinds of crimes and so he didn't have to be very much long in prison and so he went to jail for 18 months And uh, as he was in jail, he applied to all kinds of Bible colleges because he decided that he wanted to go to Bible college and there's only one that accepted him. And he was um, sent to a prison in southern Alberta and the only Bible college that would accept him was north of Saskatoon. It was just a small little Bible college. And so when Rick finished his 18-month term and was going to get to Bible college, he uh, he got out of prison early in the morning. He started walking because he had no money and he had no transportation. And as he started walking, he, the first place that he got to was just this little town. It was early in the morning, and the, was, nothing was open. And uh, so he stopped at this, it was a used car lot in the very first place he got to, and, and Rick thought, i got to get to north of Saskatoon. And, and so he looked, and there's, it was early 90s at this point in time, and, and he thought, Pfft, I, I just went, reverted back to his former life. And so he broke into a car and hotwired it and um, took off to Saskatoon and uh, drove north to saskatoon and got to school on time and uh started bible college It wasn't until around thanksgiving when finally a policeman showed up and uh asked the president of the bible college if he knew who owned that car and they went through the registry of the students and they said well that belongs to rick and so uh, they called rick out of class and said is that your car And rick said well yeah and rick hadn't touched it since he'd been there the first day because i mean he wasn't going to drive around in a stolen car and so uh they finally said back to prison for you rick and the president said look next time and you're getting out of jail he's just call me and i'll come down and pick you up okay and so rick hadn't got the whole process of sanctification quite figured out but he did have a passion for jesus is what he had and he still had a passion for the inner city and so he still does to this day and he has not stopped remembering what it's like to grow up when when it's hard to get a meal And understanding that you need to balance that truth out that there's people who need food every single day in the inner city of Saskatoon because he grew up not knowing what it's like or knowing what it's like to not have love. And so he still, to this day, has that ministry going on. And to this day, he still is in a Bible study every Friday morning because I was there with him every Friday when I lived in the city of Saskatoon. And so that balance that Rick has of knowing that he needs to walk deeper with Jesus, but at the same time, he's reaching out to give food to people who are in need. Rick was a constant reminder to me of those two things that we as Christians need to have all the time. Growing deeper in our understanding of who Jesus is in this book so that we will grow to love him more, but understanding that there's people out there in that world who have a need just for the basic elements of the needs of life. And we can do that by giving them those basic things. He was such a powerful reminder to me in my life. So what is it for you today that you need to take out of this message? Do you need to get deeper into the word of God? Uh, Because we're through pastor dave there's that online reminder day by day that you can sign up for if you go to our website and you can get a daily reminder and grow deeper in your walk with god you need to get into a life group or is there some tangible thing that you need to understand that you've got resources that you could give to help somebody else it's a balance day by day it's a balance you've got something in your life that god's speaking to you about today it's one or the other or both but there's a reminder through this message today that god's speaking to you about Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that we need to be balanced. Grow deeper in our love for you through your word or grow deeper in our love for those who don't have anything that needs something from us that we can give to them. Father, help us to love you and to love others in a deeper way today because of who you are and the needs that are out there in our world. We love you, Jesus. Thank you so much for loving us. In your name we pray, amen and amen.